0: Well, as we've already mentioned this morning and prayed about and heard from the Joins family at the beginning of our service, the theme for this first Sunday of Advent here today is the theme of hope. Now, that's not a new theme for the Christian life, is it? No, not at all. It's one that we often repeat here in in church in our times together, and this out of necessity. We live in a broken world, don't we? We need to be reminded of the hope that we have in God. Recently, the Staff and I have, have just been reflecting on just how many people in our church community have just been struggling and hurting in recent weeks. Times have always been hard. We live in a broken world as we've already uh, observed just a moment ago, but it seems like we're in a particularly tough season in the lives of many right now, and we need hope today as much as ever before, don't we? And in that, With that in mind, Advent could not have come at a better time, just like it does every year. The world is broken, we long for things to be made right, and hope powers us through. Now our, our Advent sermon series comes, as you've seen in your bulletin already this morning, from the book of Micah. Now Micah is going to offer also a message of hope, but it's not an easy message of hope to hear, at least not at first. As Micah addresses the brokenness of his own world, and, and be rest assured the, the brokenness we see in the world today is nothing new The world has always been broken since the the introduction of sin and into it. But as Micah addressed the brokenness in his own world, he was calling the people of God not so much to consider what's wrong with the world out there per se, but to, to reflect and consider on what is wrong with us in here. So it's not so much a problem out there as it is what's going on in the midst of our lives as the people of God. And his message for his people at that time, around the same time as Isaiah. So if you're wondering kind of where in history he fits, we're talking somewhere in the 700s before Christ. So around the same time as Isaiah, they're preaching to the same people with the same issues. And the message of Micah was simple. The Lord is coming to judge the idolatry of his people. The Lord is coming to judge the idolatry of his people. And he will allow the great world empire of Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom and begin to usher in a period of exile. And the whole first chapter of Micah's book is is really God's indictment against his people. A people who had developed an attachment at the level of the heart with idols that they had incorporated into the, the worship of the one true God. There's a great quote from Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges where he's talking about the similar type of thing at at that time in the life of the people of God. And he says this, the greatest danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue on as church members and feel that nothing is wrong, is not that we would become atheists, but that we would ask God to coexist with the idols in our hearts. So the the greatest concern is not that that you and I would become atheists, but that we would become comfortable with, with the idols in our hearts, that we would ask God to just accept them. And that's exactly what's going on in, in the people of God in Micah's day. They, they've allowed, they, they haven't so much abandoned and forsaken altogether the God of the scriptures. No, instead they've, they've, they've tried to continue worshiping God, but they've also brought other things alongside of God to, 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 to worship as well. They had added other objects to their worship of him. But as you know about God, he's not going to accept the coexistence of other gods in the hearts of those who belong to him. And so, yes, the world is broken, and God is going to bring an end to the brokenness in the world. And there's, there's promises of God throughout the scriptures that he's going to do just that. But Micah is going to tell us that he's going to start that work of fixing the brokenness in the world by doing whatever it takes to break the attachments of idols, in the hearts of his own people. The work will start with them. Now, we're going to be in the second chapter, throughout the second chapter here this morning of Micah, and I know that for many of you, Micah is is, is probably one of the lesser known books of the Bible. Uh, it's it Maybe some of the concepts here feel a little foreign to you because maybe you just haven't spent as much time there. A few of you were able to, to join in Wednesdays throughout the summer as we uh, did Bible studies through Micah, but I recognize that you know, not everyone here is on the same sort of level of, of awareness when it comes to Micah, so I hope you'll forgive me for doing a little bit of extra introduction this morning so we're kind of all on the same page. I'm going to be in the second chapter of Micah, and if you have a, one of our guest Bibles, we're going to be on pages 744, 745, somewhere in there. Um, but the relationship that, it, that we need to know for this morning between Micah chapter 1 and Micah chapter 2 is this. If Micah chapter 1 is God's indictment against the idolatry of his people, chapter 2 is going to explain the relationship of their idolatry to their wickedness. As a matter of fact, the chapter 2 is all about how the idolatry of God's people has manifested in oppression. Oppression over the weak and the less powerful. You see, whenever the love for God becomes divided inevitably, love for fellow man also begins to diminish. It's sort of the inverse of, of what happens when God's love floods the human heart. There's that, when that vertical relationship with, with God is right, and God by his spirit sheds his love abroad on our hearts, how does that issue forth? How is that manifested in our day-to-day life? It is through love for one another, isn't it? And so, in this, in this case, we see the opposite. God's love for God is divided, therefore, love for others begins to disappear and the outworking of that in their life together as as the people of God here in chapter two is oppression. Now it's not just a matter of of the people of God failing to do what is right. And, and oftentimes, we, we make those distinctions when it comes to falling short of the glory of God, don't we? There's these things that we, we deliberately do that we shouldn't do, but then there's things that we should do that we don't do. And, and the, the problem here is, is greater than the second of those. It's not just they were told to do things and they were, they were not doing them or they you know were, were accidentally doing things that were hurting others. No, the, the picture here is of a people who are, are deliberate, not only in their plans to prey on those less powerful, but they're eager to carry those plans out. Chapter 2 begins with this verse here in verse 1 that says, What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans. You rise at dawn and, and hurry to carry them out simply because you have the power to do so. The, the idolater here is one who will do whatever it takes to take advantage of of others in every possible way. Verse two, when you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. You see, once again, a hostility towards God, an enmity towards God, a divided love towards God, and then oppression towards others. It's, it's, It's seen here again in verse eight and nine. To this very hour, My people rise against me like an enemy. Well, what does that look like? You steal the shirts right off the backs of those who trusted you, making them as ragged as men returning from battle. You have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. And for this, God says, for the the divided loyalties of your hearts, for the ways that you have taken advantage of those among your, among your community that are less powerful than you or less fortunate than you, those who are in greater need than you, because of your idolatry, because of your oppression, he says in verse 10, you will basically be stripped of all that you have and you will be kicked out of the land that is your inheritance. Strong words. Now those words are a great message it, immediately to those being oppressed, isn't it? It's, it's a promise from God that, that he will stand with the oppressed, that he will not tolerate oppression, that he's moved when he sees it. He has compassion. He's moved to action. He's not going to abide it forever. And so for the oppressor, there, there's this promise of judgment that they, they, will, they will pay for what they've done, that, they will not, that what they have done will not be allowed to stand. And yet, God's judgment on the nation through Assyria will impact everyone. It's not as if the Assyrians are going to come into the, the land and they're going to know exactly who the ones that are doing the oppressing are and they're going to just you know, take, take away what, what belongs to them and pull them out of the land. That's not what's going to happen, is it? The judgment of God through the Assyrians is not just for those lying awake at night thinking of ways to exploit others. And so you and I, when we, when we read that, we are, we're kind of confronted with a dilemma. Where is the justice in that, God? Well, the answer to that dilemma, I think, can be found in a couple of observations. The first is this. The oppressed, at least in this, in this, in this people at this time, weren't entirely innocent. That's the first thing to keep in mind. Jo- uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is coming in judgment for the sins of the whole nation." And so this this problem of idolatry was not one that was confined to, you know, select few. It was a rampant problem. It was a widespread problem, one that touched everyone among the land. And God's not just concerned with the evil that's in the hearts of those who just happen to be in a position to oppress and exploit others. It's not like, well, their sins were really bad, so God's going to, you know, come and bring judgment to them. But everyone else, because they're a little more of the victim, you know, he's going to overlook the sins of those people. That's not the case at all. God's not concerned just with the evil in the hearts of those who are, in, who are best positioned to use it for their own advantage. No, he is concerned with the evil that resides in the hearts of all his people. Anything that is not of God, he is concerned about and is working to do something about. And this is a very cautionary lesson for you and I who maybe you're, maybe you're not like this, good for you, but, but I, I, I would tend to say a lot of us have the, the, the at least the potential, if not the, the tendency, to be quick to focus only on the sins of others. You can be so quick to see how other people fall short, how, how other people are. The, the rightful recipients of God's justice upon their, their wrongdoings, especially when they hurt us, right? When, when someone that we know has, has sinned or done something wrong and they've, they've done something hurtful and we're the recipients of it, well, we really hope for God's judgment on that, don't we? We really want God to make that right. We really want God to come in and, and stand for me and stand for in the, in the, in, when I'm oppressed and, and defend me and put that person in the right place. It's real easy for us to think that way, and yet we're so slow to acknowledge when we're the ones who are the source of hurt in someone else's life. And we're all too quick to demand God's mercy for us instead of God's judgment on us. It's so easy to see the sins of others and think, man, you know, I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not doing what they're doing. At least I'm not that person. Well, God doesn't see it that way. His goal is to bring all of his people, those with the big sins and those with even the little sins. God's goal is to bring all of his people into nothing less than what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the full and complete stature of Christ. That's his goal regardless of the thing that you struggle with, regardless of the things you're guilty of, regardless of how much better you are than the person sitting to your left or to your right, his goal was to bring all of us into the full and complete stature of his son. And that leads into the second thing that I want, I want to think about as we're weighing you know, the rightness of God's actions here and bringing the Assyrians in to, to, to basically take away all that the people have and take them into exile. And that is this. And this is probably the more important thing to keep in mind. God's primary interest for his people then, as well as for you and me today, is not in his people's happiness, but in his people's holiness. What is the greater concern on the heart of God? What is the thing that occupies his attention, the thing that he's concerned most about? Is it the comfort of his people? That they be safe, that they be you know, cozy, that they have no cares or concerns in the world? I don't think so. God's primary concern is not comfort. God's primary concern, especially for a people whose hearts are filled with idols, is the singular devotion of their hearts. And while his chosen means for rooting out their idolatry is going to hurt, there's no two ways to cut it. It's going to hurt when the king of Assyria comes in with the hordes and they take away all that the people have had, and they take the people out of their inheritance, their promised land. There's no question that God's chosen instrument to do a work among his people will be painful. But you and I both know that life-saving procedures are often the ones that cut the deepest. And those then and those today who are most serious about their relationship with God and his will for their lives in this world have to choose moment by moment in whatever they face in life to see God's hand and God's purposes at work in every circumstance. That is a, a decision of the will that you and I exercise in faith. When we see things that happen in our lives, things that are good, things that are bad, things that are easy, things that are hard, things that, are, that I understand, things that bring confusion, in joy and in suffering, when God's ways make sense and when they don't make any sense at all, we have to choose to trust in his goodness and in his promises and in his faithfulness and see his hand at work in those circumstances. And how true that was for all of the people of God in the time of Micah's day. Yes, on the surface, it appears as though God's judgment for the sins of his people is harsh, but there's always a redemptive note to it. There's always a deeper purpose in in the ways of God. It's not just about punishment. It's not just about making things right. It's about making me right. It's not just punishing me for my wickedness. It's about filling me with his holiness. And, And the righteous by faith will see that in all God's ways, in everything in their life. Judgment is coming. At the hand of the Assyrians, all will be lost. But God's purposes are not just to take away what they have, but to bring them to a place where they can see what they really need. And this is where the hard message of Micah, at least in my estimation, becomes a message of hope. Look again here in chapter two. We're gonna we finally arrived at sort of our key. Verse here after that sort of prolonged introduction. And I promise you that because the introduction is long, the rest of the sermon won't be the normal length. Okay, so if you're thinking, my gosh, he normally spends two minutes in- introducing and then another, you know, 38 minutes preaching. Now we're gonna be we're gonna be here till noon. No, that's not gonna happen, so relax. But thank you for letting me give you a prolonged introduction here. Look look now here in chapter two, beginning of verse 12. After all we've said about God's indictment against His people, the His His, um, the fact that He's going to stand with the oppressed, but even the oppressed will feel the weight of His judgment on the sins of His people. Here is the message of hope, finally, with crystal clarity, or at least the initial stages of clarity. Someday, O oh Israel, someday, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back into your own land. Your king will lead you, the Lord Himself will guide you. You see, like a shepherd, God Himself is coming to gather his people. But he's not going to come and gather the proud, the self-reliant. No, he's coming to gather what? The sheep. That is, he's coming to gather those who are humbled. Those who recognize their helplessness. Those who are aware of their their desperate need of a shepherd. And this is the message of hope. Hope for an idolatrous people, on the verge of judgment, is that God's purpose through it all is for them to experience the mighty power of God to save, freeing them from their sinful attachments, and bringing them to a place where they can be wholly his again. And that is a hard message, but that is a good message. That's a good message for his people then. It is a good message for us today as well. I know many of us here this morning have come here with hearts divided, divided between God and this world. We've been guilty of occupying the throne of our own lives. We, we've said yes to Jesus as it applies to him, saving me from all the bad things I've done in my life, but we've, we've, we've erred on the side of saying no to him with regards to his lordship over who, all of who I am today. We've contributed in many ways, whether by our actions or maybe even just by our inactions. Whether you want to accept it or not this morning, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is is bringing to your own mind and to your own heart the, the truth as it really is concerning your own life. Many of us in here, whether by our deliberate actions or our deliberate inactions, have contributed at some level to the oppression of another in this world. We all stand in need of God's mighty power to save and restore, his gracious power to correct just We heard just a few weeks ago there from Hebrews chapter 12 when Pastor Aaron preached uh, on that passage about discipline. We know that God's correction is always good for us, don't we? Why? It's so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, but afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And so in that light, Micah's voice of judgment doesn't sound so judgmental at all, but instead it is a promise of God, concerned with nothing less than saving that which has been lost. A shepherd is coming to rescue and to restore and to regather his sheep. Now, you and I know on this side of history that the fulfillment of that promise to the people in Micah's day was just a few hundred years away. When one who called himself the good shepherd would r- arrive on the scene. When he would preach a kingdom where the last would actually be first. When the poor would be the blessed. When those who are high would be brought low and when those who are low would be raised up high. When those who are oppressed, would be set free. But here's the thing about the message of that good shepherd. <laughs> Any who desire to be gathered by the shepherd and brought into his pen must first become a sheep. Brought to a place where we see our waywardness. Brought to a place where we are aware of our need, stripped of our attachments, stripped of this malicious, insidious, death-giving lie that I can find meaning or fulfillment or purpose or life in anything other than God alone. That I can, yes, I can, I can have the God of the Scriptures in this part of my life, but in this part of my life, I need this to bring me fulfillment. This to to satisfy my desires. This to give me purpose. Only those who recognize that only God can save, only God is the source of life, that only God is a shepherd for your soul and recognize their need of him and are willing to say no to everything else, only they can be brought into his pen. Jesus is that good shepherd. Isn't he? And Jesus has also shown us the way, hasn't he? He's not only the one who that that is doing the gathering; he's the one who showed us how to be gathered. The one who alone could rightly claim ownership of all the world never once exercised his rights for his own benefit. Isn't that what a contrast that is to the people of God in the day of Micah? who take whatever little power that had been entrusted to them and use it for the exploitation of their neighbor. Jesus steps on the scene. He has all the power in the universe. He rightly claims ownership to everything that is, and yet, yet he never once used his rights for his own benefit, but instead, as Paul writes, and you've heard the passage many times before, and we need to hear it again, Philippians 2, 6, though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to or to exploit for his own advantage. He did nothing to gain anything for himself at the expense of another. But instead, verses 7 and 8, He gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. And when he had appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And in response to the cross, which is not only a definitive, the definitive statement, that God will stand with the oppressed, that he will make right the wrongs in the world. It is also the clearest picture of, of the very heart and nature of God. Verses 9, and 11, 9 through 11, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has shown us the way. He has shown us that the way to life, the way to salvation, the way to godliness is through the emptying of the self, giving up our rights, not clinging to what what I deserve, not demanding what I think I'm due. No, it's the, the giving up of our rights. It's the surrendering of our will. It's being completely and exclusively yielded to and dependent upon God. And if that is true for Jesus, that he was completely yielded to God, completely dependent upon God, that he was utterly submissive to the will of his Father, how much more true should that be of you and me here today? And God is working tirelessly and endlessly in your life and in my life to make us more like his Son. Friends, that's that's a message. That's a good. That's a good message, isn't it? <laughs> that God is working right now in every circumstance in your life, and He will not stop working forever. As long as you and I have time to walk on this earth, He will never stop working to conform you into the image and likeness of His Son. Not that you will look in the mirror one day and you suddenly have a beard like a first-century Jewish man, and then and then you you not look like him physically, but that you would look like him in his righteousness. That you would be holy as he is holy. That the things that define his his heart would come to define your heart. God will not stop until you are conformed into the complete and full stature of his son. And I hope that by faith you can see that this morning. I hope that you're able to trust in that this morning. As you've come to this 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 beautiful place of worship, carrying all the loads of life with you. Sickness, the loss of a loved one, all sorts of concerns that invade you from every direction. You're you're exhausted, you're worn down, you're on the verge of depression, you're on the verge of despair, someone has broken your heart, your team lost to their rival yesterday. Whatever it is, I hope you can see and trust by faith that God is working even in the midst of that to make you more like Himself. In every situation, God is working to bring you closer and to make you more like Jesus. Come, restore, come in me today. Advent is a season for hope, hope for the oppressed. If you are the recipient of oppression, take heart. A king is coming, and in his kingdom all will be made right. All the evil in the world, all the oppression, all the darkness, all the brokenness will one day be restored. Don't think for a second that Advent is only about the first coming of Jesus. It should always and ever point us to his second coming. And our hope is in his his coming kingdom. Hope for the oppressed. But church, it is also hope for the oppressor. Hope that God is working to strip your heart of its sinful attachments and bring you to a place of full salvation in and through the good shepherd. God is working to heal his broken world and to make everything right. But that work begins in you and me here today. It begins right here. It's not a problem out there. First, it's a problem right here. Will he find a people who are willing to be his sheep? To the people of Micah's day, a shepherd was coming and has come. For his people in the world today, he is coming again. But to you and me right here this morning, he's offering to come right now. Not to give you all that you want, but to show you that he is all that you need. I hope you see that and trust that and live that out today by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of Advent. Hope that is not based on wishful thinking or a wing and a prayer, but on one who came into the world Was raised upon a cross, died and was buried, but then rose again. One who has ascended into heaven and lives never to die again. Who has made his enemies his footstool. Lord, we've said it before and we'll say it again and we will keep saying it until you return or call us home. Ours is a living Because it's placed in a living Savior. Lord, would you help us to see the face of Jesus in all that we face today in this broken world? In every heartache, in every moment of fear, in every painful situation, when we are recipients of the the wickedness of others, Lord, even when we by the aid of your spirit, see the wickedness that's in our own hearts. Lord, can we see your hand at work in all things to bring restoration to your broken world, starting with me, starting with us. Lord, do your restoring work in me today. Make right all that is wrong. Make true all that is false. Make holy all that is contrary to you in my own heart. Lord, sanctify us by the power of your spirit through the blood of your son to the glory of the Father. And may we be not agents of oppression in the world, but means of your grace to the world. Lord, fill us with the hope of Advent today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.